but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. The earth. Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from the series, Witnesses, a study on the book of Acts. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Pray as we come one more time this morning as a church to this great chapter of scripture to this great story of Saul, who was an insolent opponent of Christ and becomes an apostle. Uh, I just pray that that would encourage us, that it would um, point us towards you, Lord, that you would one more time, I ask, please fill me with your Holy Spirit, that I might encourage your church, that there might be a building up of the people of God, that that would, would happen right today based on this, this testimony of Saul of what happens to him. I cannot do that on my own. I need you, so I just ask you to help me now. For Christ's name's sake, Lord, amen. Thank you, guys. Have a seat. I hope you're welcome to Flight 37B on um, CBC Airlines there. It looks like a, we do not have drink service on this flight, just so you're wondering. Okay. That's more for last service, but it looks like we could use it this service, too, so... Um, Acts chapter 9, I'm excited about today. We've got to baptize eight or nine folks so far. We have a couple more this service. Baptism service is one of our favorite times at CBC. It's just a celebration of what God has done, what he is doing. Uh, we have new con- converts. We have people who are coming in obedience and never been baptized. So all these, these great stories coming together. And there's not a, really a better text in the scripture to be talking about when we celebrate baptism than the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Um, one of the most unlikely converts to Christianity in all the scripture, and we're going to see God reach down and rescue this man and redeem him and make him his own uh, today. And here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through the text. It's very self-explanatory. It's not, you know, complicated. Many of you are very familiar with it. So it would just be a renewal of what you know. Some of you may be new to the Bible and still be hearing it for the first time. But very simple to follow, just very straightforward how this man goes from being an enemy of God to a preacher of the gospel. And, and at the end, I'll just make a couple observations and we'll celebrate and we'll worship through baptism. So let me just jump right in to where we're, to where we're at. The text starts out by saying, but Saul... There's, there's a contrast right off the bat. What's going on so far? Well, Jesus said in Acts 1-8 that he, that he was going to make his disciples be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And we saw that. We saw him in Jerusalem. We saw him in Judea and Samaria. And then he said to the ends of the earth. We saw that last week with the Ethiopian eunuch. So he's fulfilling what he said that the, the good news of Jesus and the hope and the grace found in him is spreading. Right? But at the same time as it's spreading... Saul of Tarsus, we saw, was ravaging the church earlier. He is making his goal to destroy the people who were following Jesus in this cult called The Way, as we're going to see, named after The Way, The Truth, and The Life. And he's doing all he can. He is not just on the other team being passive. He is an aggressive, hateful man who is trying to destroy Christians. 
And so he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And, and I think it's helpful to understand a little bit about who this guy is. Who is Saul of Tarsus? What is his background? Where, where does he come from? He is from a city called Tarsus. Tarsus is in modern day Turkey. It is on the coast. This is a metropolis. He's not a little country boy. He's not from Bloomingdale. All right? I'm not against Bloomingdale. It's a great little city. All right? Two, two lights and a hearties. You can't beat it, right? But this is a guy who is from a big city. He's a city boy, right? He grew up in a metropolis, fairly wealthy parents. Dad was a Pharisee. Dad's dad, Pharisees down the line. Had every advantage growing up. Highly educated. Super intelligent. He knows Greek. He knows Latin. He knows Hebrew. He knows Aramaic. Very intelligent. His parents would have brought him up. He would have been mastering the Old Testament law and, and, and mastering the literature of the poets, poetry and, and of the prophets. Maybe memorized the entire Old Testament by a young age, right? Very smart guy. And at some point, his family would have sent him to Jerusalem to further his education where he sat under the, the most respected rabbi of the time. We saw him a few weeks ago, Gamaliel where he became the prize student. It's an Ivy League education for him, and now he is the valedictorian of the class, super intelligent, learning the, the law on a level he didn't know before. He is mastering it. He is a, a lawyer in the co busy courts of Jerusalem. He is blameless, he would say, in the law, zealous for it, with the ultimate goal for him probably being part of that, that group of men that called the Sanhedrin, the 71 men who kind of governed the religious lives and the people of, of Israel, kind of the high point for them. That would have been his, his goal. And, and thus, he was probably, most, most people think about 30 to 35, he was probably the same age of Christ, which means he probably was in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, because all good Jews would be at Jerusalem during the Passover. So he would have been in the city. Maybe he was one of the ones yelling, maybe he wasn't, but he would have been in the city knowing what was going on. He was probably there for Pentecost, hearing this, this rush of wind, and he sees this, this guy stand up and preach how Jesus of Nazareth was dead, and now he's alive. And it probably made him bristle, hearing this, this ignorant fisherman say that this man was God. Probably just thought, if I could just get him in a dark alley, I'll take care of this deal. He saw the church spreading. He would have been familiar with the lame man who sat at the gates of the temple every day because he was at the temple constantly. So he would have been familiar when he sees him jumping around, praising God. He would have seen that. He would have heard the great defense of Peter then. He would have heard probably his mentor talking to the rest of these Jewish leaders saying, just let's leave this sect alone. If, it, if it's from God, we can't stop it anyway. And he probably thought the old man has lost it. He's, he's, he's off his rocker. He was obviously there when Stephen gave his brave defense, and at the end of which he has these men circle around Stephen with big stones to crush him because they laid their, as they laid their jackets at his feet because he's responsible in encouraging it. Saul hated the church, and he hated Jesus. And it wasn't because he was an atheist. All right, He was, in his mind, a God-fearer. A zealous keeper of the law, minus the whole love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength part. He was opposing what he thought was a wicked cult called the way, zealous to destroy it. So zealous, he says in, in verse 
1 and 2, that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is so zealous, he is willing to travel 150 miles to chase these Christians who are scattered to the ends of the earth. He's down here. He's willing to go 150 miles bringing a bunch of Christians back so that he can persecute them, so that he can throw them in jail. That's how zealously he is opposing the church. He would later say that he was an insolent opponent to Jesus. And so as he's traveling on his way, and you know the story, many of you, Saul still breathing threats of murder, he goes, and as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. We, we learn later that Jesus the glorified Christ appears to him and it shines around him and it knocks him on his tail and knocks him off his horse and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice the emotion there. It's repeated twice. Why do you persecute me? Not the church, not my people. When, when Jesus' church is persecuted, when they suffer, it is a, he takes it personally because it's his bride. He says, why do you hate me, Saul? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you trying to destroy me? Why are you resisting me? And the irony of what he says next, here's a guy who thinks that he knows God, and now God is speaking, and he doesn't know who he's talking to. Who are you, Lord? And it's not Lord like God, Lord. It's Lord like respect, the title of respect, master. He doesn't know yet. Who are you? And this is when he has one of those all crud moments. He says, I am Jesus. And the, the structure of the Greek, which was originally in Aramaic, he was speaking, very familiar to this, the great I am is speaking. Right out of the Old Testament. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the math is going on in his mind. I thought I was on God's team. Now I find out that God and Jesus are on the same team. I'm attacking Jesus. So whose team am I on? Oh, crud. That's the all crud moment, right? Because he realizes that he has been opposing God, right? And so God speaks again. He says, you didn't give him anything, but go, enter the city, and you'll be told what you were to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They, they were hearing the voice. They didn't see the light. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into the city. And don't miss the symbolism and the spiritual irony and the physical symbolism, all these things. A few moments ago, this man was strong and powerful, and he's in control. Now he is so weak, he's got to have a bunch of guys hold his hand and get him where he wants to go. A few moments ago, he would have told you that if, if you were suffering, God was not with you. Because when God is with you, you prosper, and when he's not, you suffer. Now he's suffering, yet he's closer to God than he's ever been. A few moments ago, he could see clearly physically, but he was blind spiritually. Now he is blind physically, but he is seeing more clearly than ever. And so he goes, and he sits there for three days. He was without his sight. Don't you love that God makes him sit there for three days and just sit there and wait? Just sit. Not knowing Imagine what those three days are like. No food, no, no drink. He is probably scared. He is clearly praying we're going to see. His world has been rocked. Everything that he thought was true is not. His world has been upside down. What does his future look like? Will I ever see again? Can I ever read the scriptures? Can I ever do any of this? There's all these questions probably flooding in his mind. And meanwhile, God is doing something. 
he goes to a man named Ananias. There's a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, how would you like to get that phone call? You've not, Ananias, Lord Jesus, I have a job for you. Yes, there's a guy named Saul from Tarsus. He's waiting for you. I've given, you, I've given him your name. You've given him my name, Lord. Thank you very much. Uh, right? He knows you're coming. How'd you like that? This, the church is in, is in hiding, mostly. They're sitting in small rooms, and they're worshiping, and they're, hey, let's sing how great they are, but don't get too loud, Charlie. You always get so loud at the chorus. We, we got to be quiet because they might find us, and they might find them because of this guy. He, he's the equivalent of the, the head of the Nazi SS in, in Germany, Heinrich Heimler. He's, he's that guy. He's responsible for dragging these people. He's the one that comes in and takes moms from their kids. He's the one that takes dads from their families. He's the one that throws them in the jail. It's this guy. And you told him my name? And so he's got questions, and I don't blame him. And he says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. Notice his reputation is made at 150 miles in a day with no internet, no newspapers, but they still hear about him. They know all about him. Lord, I, I know that guy. He hates us. He hates you. He has authority from the chief police to blind all who call on your name. Are you sure you're talking Saul of Tarsus and not like Saul of Marsus or something else? <laughs> Does he know there might be another guy? He says, go. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. I chose him to be my instrument. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles, for kings and the children of Israel. And that's exactly what Paul does. He's going to go to Rome and talk to Caesar. He's going to talk to Festus. He's going to take the gospel of Turkey in modern-day Asia. He's going to do all that. And he says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And I love that Ananias just goes. This is last week's sermon. Not a lot of certainty, but there's absolute clarity, right? Just simple obedience. Doesn't know what's going to happen, but he knows what God has called him to do. And I'm sure there was a discussion with him and his wife. Honey, where are you going? Jesus just told me to go find this guy Saul of Tarsus and go, go, go help him. You're going to help who? I'm sure there was that discussion. I'm sure he's walking on this street called Straight, and he's looking over at the house, and he's outside, and he's just kind of doing a couple laps like a teenage guy who does it outside the girlfriend before he goes up and asks the day. And he's just going back and forth, and he might go to the door and then do one of these. And I mean, there's probably a lot of that. And then he knocks finally, and the door opens, and there in the corner, shadowy, broken-looking figure and he goes over and, brother, brother Saul? Notice what he says to him, brother. He calls him brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But he has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he touches him. Because Jesus earlier told him to lay hands on him and, and, and he's going to receive his sight. So he touches him and he probably prays for him. And then immediately, 
Something like scales fall from his eyes. He regains his sight and he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Radical, right? And then, not as radical as what happens next. And then for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately, circle that, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. They're, they're blown away. Is this guy schizophrenic? He came in here, he's atta- and now he's, what, what's going on? It's blowing their minds. And, and they get angry just like him. And now the hunter becomes the hunted. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The hunted, hunter becomes the hunted. And not just there. And, and, and same thing happens in Jerusalem. This is three years later. Verse 26 is three years later we find out from Galatia. He doesn't go down to Jerusalem. But when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Three years later, they don't want nothing to do with the guy. They're scared of him. Three years his reputation is still there. They did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas, good old Barnabas, the encourager, we saw him before. He takes him and he brings him to the apostles, and he declares to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He's going to run out of every city. He gets to get run out of almost every city he's in. His life's in danger from here on out. But yet the church, verse 31, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Despite the opposition, it multiplied. Now, let me just kind of highlight a couple things about this conversion story. I, I just kind of was, I've been reading this story for a couple of weeks now, just thinking about it and, and God's been pressing things. I've written it down in my journal and kind of come back to it. I started with like four or five. I got like eight now. All right, so let me just kind of, might be have nine by the end of the service, who knows? All right, you'll get one more than everyone else did this weekend. But let me just highlight a couple things about this that I think are encouraging and challenging. And here's the first one, that no one is beyond God's grace. No one. And if you're thinking, yeah, but there's this guy at work and you, he, God will never get him. That dude, no way. Let me just tell you, this church is filled with that dude's. I can tell you right now. And you're looking at one of them. This is a that dude. If you would ask my senior class at the Citadel, what's Fowler going to be doing? Out of the thousand jobs on the list, pastoring a church would be the last one. Right? They'd be, they were not going to say, what's, oh yeah, he's definitely going to be pastoring what? The church of Miller Lite? That's the only church he would pastor. <laughs> That's what they would have said. So I can promise you that there is a bunch of that dudes in this church. So if you're praying for a dude, or you've been praying for your spouse for 38 years, or your son for 26, or your grandparents, then you keep praying because there's no one that is beyond God's grace. No one. And here's the example. And if you thought that you came in here and you have done something in your past that is so bad that God could never forgive you, His sin is so great, it is so wicked, that there's just this guilt and shame, and God would never love me, and God would never forgive me, then here is your example. Because I promise you, most of you here, you didn't throw moms and dads in jail 
because they love Jesus. You didn't have people killed because they were Christians. All right? You say, no, but, but I, ha- I had an affair, three of them. You mean like David? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I stole from my company, went to jail for a couple months. I was a thief. Oh, you mean like the guy next to Jesus on the cross who, who said today would be in paradise? That guy? I lived for 47 years as a heathen and just living my life for myself and didn't know God and made all these bad decisions. Oh, you mean like the Philippian jailer that we're going to see in a couple weeks? So you can go through the scripture and there's plenty of guys that have done all these things and yet God has reached down and he has forgiven them and he has shown them grace. And there is nothing you have done that is too great for the grace of God. And if you want your example, here he is, Saul of Tarsus. No one is beyond God's grace. No one. Here's the second thing. And again, here's what, here's what Paul says just real quickly. Later recapping this, he says, I, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief sinner. I was a, a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The reason Jesus saves is to show how perfect his patience is. He, he, then the more sinful doesn't, doesn't scare him. It glorifies him. No one's beyond. Second thing is this, that, that God is the author of salvation. And look, I don't care where you're on the scale of Calvinist, Arminian, Calvinian, I'm a 12-pointer, I'm a 2-pointer. I don't care. But what this text shows me is that here's a guy who's not seeking God at all. He is not seeking Jesus. He's not like, oh, I'm, I'm almost through Yancey's book. I'm, I'm almost there. I read more than a carpenter. He's not seeking. He is opposing, and yet God reaches down and saves him. And it shows me that the God is the one who moves, that God is the one who draws. And the reason that's important is because when we start to take a little bit of credit in this, yeah, but I did this and I did this, we steal his glory. We st- and, and, and in my experience, limited as it may be, those who think they bring something to the table other than sin usually underappreciate God's grace. They do. Justification, the forgiveness of sins, sanctification, the growing and in, in grace from the power of sin, glorification, the, the, the experience of being separate from sin forever. This is all a work of Jesus from beginning to end. He gets the glory. That's why the next part in First Timothy of the verse we just read, he says, to him be glory. He is the immortal. He is the invisible, only wise God. To him be glory forever and ever. And he's the author of salvation. Next is that conversion always leads to life change. Not perfection, but life change. What do, what do we see in Paul? We see a guy who was persecuting the church. The next day he is preaching. How does that happen? Conversion, born again, newness, the spirit. You see a guy who, if you asked him the day before, do you sin? I am sinless. I am, I am good. I obey the law. I do these things. And he spent his whole life trying to impress people and show them how spiritual he was and how religious he was and how good he was. And now he is standing up and saying, I am getting baptized because I recognize I am broken and I need to die and my pride needs to die and my ego needs to die and my self-confidence needs to die and I am putting my faith in Jesus. It is a radical change. Radical. But that's what happens. It's when the Spirit comes to live within you, it has to happen. Not that you're going to be perfect. Romans 7 says that there's a battle constantly going on. But there is change at conversion. The Spirit of God cannot come in you and not give you new desires. It's not that you stop sinning, but now it's not so delightful. 
now there is conviction. Now there's a one to re repent and turn. And if there's never been life change, there may have never been conversion. And here's another just sub-point of that. We need people in the church to recognize that there's a bunch of baby Christians here, and you need to be okay with it. Because some of you have been like saved 28 years, and you're like, you look over there, and that person's a new Christian, and doing stuff, you're like, I can't believe they would do that. Ah, You know what? What do babies do? They do that. And you need to be okay with that, brother Saul. You need to be like Ananias who comes along the new believer and says, it's okay, Bubba. It's okay. You need to be like Barnabas when everyone's like, no. And you put your arm around him and say, this is my brother. We got some Christians been saved 30 years and they think they forget that they were a baby. You were a crying, whiny, messing in your drawers baby at one point. <laughs> and these people are going to grow up. You got to give them time. But you got to be okay with that. Right? There's people all over different spectrums in this church. New believers saved a long time. But conversion always changes the person. Next thing. This is a great, uh, just something I just really love about this text. Is that God redeems our past. He redeems it. He takes the guy, uh, look at verse 22. Isn't this, this is awesome. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. How did he prove that Jesus was the Christ? He used the Old Testament. He used the scriptures. Why? Because these speak of Christ. These speak of who he is from Genesis to Malachi. And what's happened now that his eyes, the scales have been removed, he knew it, he memorized it. And now he's like, Psalm 22, that's the cross. Why didn't I see it? Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7. Oh, virgin birth, Emmanuel. Why didn't I see it? Isaiah 53, suffering servant. Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem. <laughs> Zechariah 9, 9, donkey riding in Jerusalem. Why didn't I see it? Because he had scales, Saul. But now he does it. And what God does is he redeems his past. He, he had all that wisdom and all that knowledge and all that, that studying. And God didn't just trash it. Now he's going to use it. Okay, you didn't, he didn't know God was preparing him. But God is sovereign even over his brokenness. He's going to take all this information that he has stored. And he thinks he's so good and he's so smart. And he's going to use it now. Now you are going to write most of the New Testament. You're going to know you're going to write the greatest the greatest book on, on the gospel ever been written, the book of Romans. You're going to explain it in a way that no one else has. And God redeems his past. This, this Roman citizenship that he buys at some point in his life, he has no clue why. He's going to use that little deal that he had before Christ so that he can go to Rome and spread the gospel there. That's what God does to your past. He redeems it. So don't run from, oh, you don't know what I was so bad. I had this, I had this. You had an abortion. You had three. God can redeem that. And now this lady over here who's, who's struggling because she did, you're able to go and you're able to love on her and counsel her and encourage her because God redeems that. That money that you spent 48 years just pursuing and pursuing and loving and God has given you a lot of it, he can redeem that now that you can be like Zacchaeus who's now just giving it away. Being generous because God redeems it. I've been divorced three times. That God can redeem that, and now you can go be, you can counsel these people who are struggling and all these things. That God can, whatever it is, God is sovereign over those things, and you need to recognize that. I would see it time and time again. Look, I didn't know what God was doing. Why did I, why did I become a PE major? Because I like kickball. That's why. That's not a great reason to spend 80K. 
all right? It's just not a good reason. It's, yeah, I like volleyball. Let's go be that in my life, right? I had no clue what God was doing when I checked the box on that application. But now I do because I saw that God gives me this job as an elementary school PE teacher that I have to teach five-year-olds how to kick a ball and line up. And I can tell you this. If you can teach a kindergarten class to line up, you can do anything. <laughs> I can tell you right now. And so God is teaching me, this guy who is scared of public speaking, how to communicate on a level with five-year-olds so that one day I would be able to communicate with clarity his word. I didn't see it. I just checked the box because I like kickball. That's called God redeeming a past. And he can do it for you. Don't run from it. Yes, there's brokenness there, but let him use that for his glory. That's what he does with Paul. That's what he does. He redeems it and he can do it for you. Next. Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean life gets easy. I know we know that, but it's just sometimes it's important to come back. What happens as soon as he gets saved? He's preaching and then they try to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem. This is the church, the apostles, Peter, James, they're going to love me. No, they don't. Then they try to kill him there too. And everywhere he goes. And at the end of his, you know, kind of writing life, at the end of 2 Corinthians, it's not the last book, but it's towards the end. He, he talks about all he's gone through. 2 Corinthians 11. You can read about it. Beaten three times with rods. 39 lashes five times. Stoned to the point of death. They thought he was dead. Shipwrecked three times. I'm thinking after number one, I'm taking the, I'm taking the train. At sea a whole day, floating around, hungry, cold, starving, robbers down the line, eventually beheaded. I, I don't think that God has a plan, wonderful plan for his life necessarily. In fact, if anything, he says he's my instrument and he's going to suffer. So let's, let's be honest when we, when we talk about Christ. He's not going to, oh, your life's going to be great. You're going to be great, great. It might be, and you might be the Apostle Paul. Let's be honest about it. Jesus, what does Jesus offer? He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers eternal life. He offers joy and contentment and satisfaction. But that doesn't mean everything's going to be great. And the, the reason the prosperity gospel doesn't work anywhere else in the world except for America, because you can't go to the Sudan and say, hey, everything's going to be great today. Just come to Jesus. Yeah, I know ISIS is around the corner trying to kill you. Yeah, I know that. But everything's going to be great. I see, it doesn't work except for in here. It may go great, and it may not. But this is not our hope. We have contentment and joy and satisfaction here because we know what comes there. And so does Paul. So at the end, he says, I have run the race. I have finished the course. Ahead is the crown of life for, those, for me and for those who love Christ. And so it's just a reminder. It's tough for Paul, but that's okay because now he's in glory. Next one. I'm reminded real quickly that all salvation is amazing. It's all a miracle. We love the testimony of the guy who, you know, was in jail for 38 years and smoked crack from the age of three, and then he becomes a preacher. We love that story, and we should. But don't forget that the, guy, the five-year-old child who, who sits in his mother's lap singing, Jesus, love me, that's just as amazing. Because it took just as much of Christ's blood, it took the same spirit to open that little five-year-old's eyes as it did that 55-year-old. They are all a miracle. And we celebrate this, but we all really want this one. That's the one we want. It's vanilla, it's bland, but it's a miracle because all salvation is a miracle. And it's a great reminder for us that all of it's a miracle and we celebrate it all. Next, 
I'm reminded from this text that legalists hate grace. Here's what I mean. There's a little bit of this in all of us that we see, that's, that's kind of, Paul gets off easy a little bit, right? I mean, shouldn't he have a little justice first? Three days of blindness? How about three years, Lord? Three years of blindness is good. That's better. There's a little bit of a, of a legalism. We have a little bit of the older brother from the prodigal son story in all of us, where the prodigal son comes back and we're like, what? I've been here the whole time. He comes in. He gets saved. He gets heaven too. He needs to suffer a little bit, doesn't he? There's a little bit of that in all of us because we have legalism. We don't. Legalists hate grace. I read a little book a couple months ago, and I kind of just went back to it this week looking through it. It was a book, a story of this chaplain named Henry Garricky, or Garricky, however you pronounce it, who was a chaplain for the, 10 of the worst criminals at the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis. He was assigned, he's an American chaplain, and he was given, because he spoke German, the responsibility to be the chaplain for these guys who were going to die. And he goes into this one colonel's uh, cell the first day, this, this man who's responsible for the killing of thousands, and he sees him reading his Bible, and his first response is, he's a fake. He's a fraud. Trying to convince me that he believes in God. But over the next several months, this man led at least three, probably four or five of these, these war criminals to faith. One of them, standing with the rope around his neck, about to meet his maker, looks down at this chaplain who walked each one out, and he looks at him and says, I will see you again, brother. That, does that bother you a little bit, that that guy killed millions of people, and he gets to go to heaven? Only if we're a legalist, a little bit. Because the reality is we're all fall short of the glory of God. And you can identify someone who doesn't love grace when you talk of grace and the freedom of salvation and they always try to add something to it. Yeah, that's great, but make sure that they do. After they become a Christian, you make sure you do the, teach them this, because there's something that bothers the legalist about grace, that, that salvation is free, that, that you don't have to do anything to get it. They always want to guard it because... Don't tell them it's free because then they'll just go live their lives the way they want and then they just, just get grace, grace, grace. Actually, Paul says the opposite is true. That if you really understand grace, that is a motivator to pursue Christ. And when you do fall, you go back to grace and you're thankful for it. It's not a license to sin. It's actually a motivator to not. But legalists want to control. And it reminds me as a church, we need to guard against it. Because we experience grace free. And we offer it, the grace that's in Christ. And then one more. This is a big one. The hyper-religious person can be hyper-wrong. Right? And Paul is the perfect example. That, that in our culture, the southern culture, that there can be people in the middle of a powerful religious setting and still miss God and still miss the gospel. It's very possible. In fact, very likely. Right? Especially in our culture. Just like Paul. He has the Bible memorized. He's doing all this stuff. And if you asked everybody in our church, you know, the thousand or so people that come through the door on a Sunday morning, if you ask them, how sure are you to die? If you die today, you'd go to heaven. We'd probably get too many answers. We get one group that said, I am absolutely certain. And you get another group that says, I'm pretty sure. I hope so. And on and, and the surface, you say, which one's a more arrogant statement? Which one's more humble? Some people might say, this guy over here, he's arrogant. He's saying he's going to heaven. He's sure. That's an arrogant statement. But in reality, the opposite is true. 
Because the reason he's saying this is because I have a champion who left heaven and died for me. I'm, I'm bro- I, if it was up to me, I'm out. But since he lived the perfect life, since he died to satisfy God's wrath, because he resurrected, I'm putting my faith in him, and he is sure. So I am only sure because of him. It's not because of me. But the guy over here that says, I hope so, I think so, what he's trusting in probably is a list, right? Or a line. There's a line that kind of you cross, and, and it's probably, I don't know where it is, but it's probably like right here. Now, Hitler, he's like way back there. And my sixth grade math teacher, he's like right there. And my mother-in-law, she's like right there. But I'm on the other side because I got my list. I go to CBC. I take notes. I read my Bible. I sing. I send my kids to the the high school thing. I'll give once in a while. Let's say a prayer. I'm good. I'm in front. My good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. That's where I'm at. And that sounds humble, but it actually is very arrogant because what you're saying is God is not that holy and you're not that sinful and that you can somehow get to him on your own. So it sounds real humble, but really it's saying, I'm pretty good, right? I can do things. And what you have to do is what happened to Saul of Tarsus. He had his list, Benjamite, Jew, law, perfect, all these things, and, and his list in the end, you know what he says about his list, his spiritual resume? He says, it's garbage. Philippians 3, he says, it's dung. I count it rubbish, trash, compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ. And so you need to come to a place where you, the scales fall off and that you recognize that your list is trash. It's just trash, because I can promise you, your list is not as good as his list. And he was hyper-religious, and he went to church more than you, and he sang the songs, and he prayed the prayers. Hyper-wrong, right? You got to come to the end where your list is junk, and Jesus' list is all that matters, and you put your faith in him. And that's what Saul does. That's what this story is. That's why he's blind. That's why he's empty. That's why he's broke, because he had to recognize he was sinful and separated. But yet, then he was forgiven, and, and what I love is one day we're going to spend eternity with this dude. And I'm sure next to, you know, Jesus and Moses, there's going to be a line to talk to people. I'm sure Paul's line will be pretty long. But we got some time. Got a couple billion years. I can wait. All right? I can wait for a little bit. But I'd love to meet this guy. But I'll tell you what. If he was here this morning, he would simply, in, in simple terms, just say, say this, that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And he had a list, and now he's got none. And that's what he would encourage. And then he would say, these people that are coming this morning to identify, let's celebrate with them. Let's put our arms around them and say, brother, let's say sister, because it is a miracle when God opens the eyes of someone and they are saved. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate. We're going to sing. We're going to baptize some folks. We're going to be excited about it because it's what God has done, and he is a great God, right? And we've baptized you know, nine or ten earlier. We got three more, I think, this service. And so you guys are invited to celebrate with them. Why don't you stand, and we will sing, and then we will baptize. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and opening our eyes, the scales falling off for you moving towards us. I pray that you would, uh, as we just sing, as we worship, that we would just be rejuvenated in our excitement about the fact that you are alive and you're doing things, that you would grow the church in Savannah and beyond, that many people through uh, 
through churches, we'll hear the gospel through people that will come to know Jesus. I pray that if someone here is a hyper-religious person, trusting in themselves like Saul, they would see that their list is, is junk. That if they're a legalist and they're hating grace and freeness in Christ, that they would see the beauty that saves. That if they're struggling, that they would see that that's normal. That they, if they're having doubts about if you could ever love them, that they would feel your spirit comforting them, knowing that there's nothing beyond you and your grace. Thank you in Jesus' name.